Revelation chapter 2. The next two weeks, both tonight and next week, we are looking at Christ's message to his church before the events of chapter 6 through chapter 19 take place on earth and God's wrath is poured out and his plan for the end of time as we know it is executed, God has a message for his church, his people, before he takes us out and he comes. There's so much that we can glean as God's people from his message to each of these seven local churches. Remember, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and more than prophecy and more than end-time events, it is revealing to us who Jesus Christ is. And more than anything else, that's what we should be taking away from this study 22 Wednesdays later, is that we have grown in our understanding and appreciation and admiration for who Jesus is. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when we come to Revelation chapter 2, after seeing the vision of the glorified Christ in Revelation 1. We now are not only being encouraged to see him as he is, we are encouraged as his people to hear him as he speaks to us because he has a message to his people through his church. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a firm grasp on the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We saw last week at the end of chapter 1, the seven golden lampstands represent the church, these local churches, and that Jesus is saying, I walk amongst my people. Out of that, Jesus has a message to each church. Now, several things we're going to learn about Jesus as we study the next two weeks, these two chapters. One, he loves the church. The Bible says that Jesus is the head of the church. The Bible says that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The local church is a priority to Jesus Christ. Therefore, it should be a priority to his people, too. Let me say something very hard, but very necessary. And I'm not saying I'm saying this to you all. I'm just getting this out there. At the judgment seat of Christ, we will not be judged for our sin. That took place on the cross of Christ once and for all. But one of the things we learn in these next two chapters is that we, as God's people, are accountable to him. The church is accountable to our head, Jesus Christ. And one day we're going to have to answer for how we live our Christian life after we were saved. And I personally believe that one of the questions... Jesus Christ will ask every Christian is, what about my church? Did you have a love for my church? Were you engaged with my church? Did you serve in my church? Was church a priority to you? Because it is to me. I'm the head of the church. I'm building my church. 
why aren't more Christians <laughs> prioritizing church if it's so important to the Lord Jesus Christ? And it is through his church, as we see in these chapters, that he gets his message to his people. And we need to hear that message. That's the first thing. The second thing is, what we learn about our Jesus as God is he's very orderly. There is a pattern in these next two chapters that we're going to look at over the next two weeks, and Jesus holds to that pattern. In a sense, Jesus has a rhythm of how he does things. And when you think about that, God has a rhythm. Not that he can't change that at any time or intervene or whatever, but just like he created the world with a seven-day cycle and even told his people, six days work, one day off, six days work, one day off. Get a rhythm to your life. And God has a rhythm to the things that he does. And you and I, if we're going to follow him, we need to find out what his rhythm is and get on board with his rhythm rather than trying to play our own tune and get him in tune with us. So as we work through this, we're going to do this a little bit differently tonight. In chapter 2, his message is to four churches. Next week, we're going to see the, his message to three churches. And we're going to actually take each of the aspects of what he's doing at the time and just touch on them at each church level. So the first thing that we see about our Jesus is this. It's a solemn pronouncement, verse 1. Why? Why is it a solemn pronouncement in each of these churches? Because it's coming from God. God is speaking here to his people through the church, you see. Notice verse 8. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who's first and last, the one who was dead but came to life. Verse 12. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who has a sharp double-edged sword. Verse 18, this is the solemn pronouncement of the Son of God, the one who has eyes like fiery flame. He's picking up on what we saw in the vision of Christ in chapter 1, and he's reminding his people, this is who I am. He's saying, this is my identity. Don't forget who's speaking to you here. Which is why then, at the end of each of these messages to the churches, notice what he says. Look at verse 7. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the church. Now, why does he say it that way, even though it's Jesus speaking? Because the Spirit is the part of the Trinity that takes even the message of Jesus and teaches us and guides us in, in grasping it, comprehending it, applying it, and all that. It still has to come through the agency of the Spirit. So he says, if you have an ear... You better hear what the Spirit is saying. Yes, he's speaking, Jesus, but it's the Spirit who's taking the words of Jesus and literally bringing them down to our level, applying them to each of us in our situation as churches and even as individuals. Because one of the things I want to point out here tonight is even though these are messages to Jesus' people corporately as a community of believers, and we need to apply that as the Oasis Church, just like any local church was, would, because notice, Jesus doesn't say, hear what the Spirit says to that church. He says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because all seven of these churches 
And the message that Jesus gives them can be applied to some degree to every church, even down through history and even up to today. Look at verse 11. The one who had an ear better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 17, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, you see the pattern here. This is who's speaking. The Lord of glory is speaking to his people through the church, and he's saying over and over again, I need you to hear me here. Look at verse 28. The one who has an, or 29, the one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the church. God expects a positive response from his people when he speaks to us. He expects us to open up our ears. And, and the word hear means more than just, oh, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. No, it, it, it's a, a, a way to maybe better say it in English is embrace it. Receive it. Let it penetrate. Let it work. Let it touch your heart. There's many ways to say it, but that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, don't be like the parable where the word of God, that seed just falls on that hard soil and it doesn't penetrate, it doesn't get through, it doesn't bear fruit. Hear, my friends, what the Spirit is saying to the church. So in each of these messages, he starts out first with his identity. I'm the glorified Christ. Don't ever forget who's speaking to you, Jesus is saying. And then he says, I walk amongst you. I know exactly what your situation is. Please hear me as I speak to you. Now, there's something else that comes through in each of these messages to his church, and that is he loves the church. He loves his people, and everything that he says to his people corporately is so that they can experience him as a church, as a community of believers at the highest level. If at any point they're not being the church, the lampstand, the light that God calls them to be and creates them to be and brings them together to be, then they're missing out. And so Jesus is going to come and, and he's going to commend each of these churches, almost every one of them. There's, I think, one out of the seven that he doesn't commend them for anything. But then he's also going to correct each church, and say, here's what you need to change in your church fellowship so that you can experience the life that I have for you as my people, as a community of believers at the highest level. Now, again, apply these messages in the next two weeks to you personally, because Jesus, in a sense, works the same way with us individually. He will come to us and say, I'm God speaking to you, right? So open up your ears and listen as the Spirit takes my message to you and apply it to your life. Embrace it. Open it up. Receive it. Because I'm there with you. I, I know exactly what's going on in your heart and life, just like I know exactly what's going on in every one of my churches that I've planted, every one of my lampstands. I know, which is now where I want to go to. Look at verse 2. I know, Jesus says. Notice verse 9, I know. Verse 13, I know. 
over and over again. Verse 19, I know. Jesus is saying, I know exactly what's happening in each church. I know the good, the bad, and the ugly. I know it. I know it for two reasons. One, I'm there. I'm not this aloof, faraway God that has nothing to do with my people. I, I see every heart. I know exactly what the spirit of every church is. I know what's going on. I know what the motive I, I know it because I'm there. But secondly, he knows it because he's the Lord of glory. He's omniscient. He knows everything. In fact, one of the I am statements we looked at last week, look over at chapter 2, verse 23 at the end. I'm the one who searches minds and hearts. Christ in his omniscience knows exactly how we feel and what we think, and nothing can be hidden from him. He's the Lord of glory. So he knows. He knows. We can't fool God as a church. We can't fool God as individuals. If we truly accept him as the one that was revealed to us in John's vision in chapter 1, then, okay, Lord, you're right. You know. Why am I trying to pull a fast one on you? You know exactly what's going on. I know. But then if you go back up to chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus begins first with commendation before correction. I think that's important. Jesus, in every case, tells each church what they're doing well before he tells them what they're not doing so well. That's a good pattern. It's a good rhythm. I tried to adopt that as a parent, <laughs> where if my child needed corrected, that I always started out with the things that they were doing well first before I got into the correction, you see. That's what Jesus is doing here. If you have a tough conversation with somebody and you need to talk about something tough, start out with something that they're doing well first, something that you all have in common first before you get to the hard stuff. He says, I know your works as well as your labor and steadfast endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil. I know that you've even put to test those who refer to themselves as apostles, but are not. You're doing well on the doctrinal side, the theological side. In a sense, we would say it's the word side. The church at Ephesus was doing well on the word side. He even says in verse 3, hey, I'm also aware that you persisted steadfastly, endured much for the sake of my name, not grown weary. Okay. I'm not saying it's all bad there in Ephesus. Some good things. But now comes this, verse 4. But I have this against you. You've departed from your first love. And you know what that really is? That's worship. They were good with the word, you know, had all their theological T's crossed and I's dotted, but they had lost their love for the Lord. That's worship. And what you and I are going to find, very interestingly, in each of these messages to the church is that Jesus is looking for churches that are strong in worship and strong in the Word. 
That's how Jesus measures his church. In fact, you'll never note that Jesus says nothing about the size of the church, how big it is, says nothing about the offering and how much the church brings in, doesn't say anything about. And yet, as I've told you before, part of why I stopped getting together with groups of pastors is all they want to talk about is nickels and noses. The first thing at a pastor's conference to other pastors is, how many are you running and what's your offerings? I'm like, you guys have missed the boat. That's not what the church is going to be judged for or held accountable before before God. That means nothing to God. God is looking for a few in his church who love him more than anyone or anything else and who's willing to hold to the truth of God's word and speak the truth always, but to do it in love. That's what God's looking for. And notice Jesus goes on to say, therefore, remember from what high state you have fallen and repent. Now, now, don't miss that. Jesus says, you you can't get any higher than putting me in your life as a church and as individuals as your first love. Any departure from putting me first as your first love, as loving the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, is you've dropped. Because the highest life is a life of love because God knows that when we love him, we then are setting ourselves also in a position where we can truly receive and, and, and sort of embrace his love for us. And it's just love on love all the time because God is love. And there's no better life than living in the love of God, loving him and letting him love on us every day. It can't get any better than that. So Jesus says, you realize when you left me your first love, you started to fall as a church. But in each and every case, Jesus provides the solution to the church's need. In every case. Jesus never comes along in each of these messages and says, you're missing the boat, too bad. Eh." He says, here's where you're missing the boat, but here's what you can do to change it. Here's what you can do to correct it, because that's who Jesus is. He always gives his people an opportunity then to respond as the Spirit is speaking to us to get things back in line and lined up with the way God wants them as a church and as individuals. So I say that to encourage us. We learn many things already about our Jesus. First of all, we need to see him as the glorified Christ like last week. Second, we need to hear him as the glorified Christ. We need to know that our Jesus is not way out there, but he's literally walking amongst us. He's right here in our midst all the time, and that's why he knows everything very intimately about what's going on in our fellowship and what's not, just like he does in our lives. And he loves us. So therefore, when he speaks to us, Everything that he says to us is either a reaffirmation of the things we're doing good and just keep doing those good things because they will bring blessing and favor and they will set you up 
to be advantageous in your life. They will set you up to experience life at the highest level. But then if there are things out of joint or out of whack, Jesus will come in and say, here's how you can change that because I'm your answer. I'm your solution. And I want us to know that today, that, that the answer is always with Jesus. <laughs> The solution in our own life and the solution to our problems or needs as a church is always with Jesus. He is the wisdom of God. Therefore, he always has the answer for his people. All we have to do is have the faith to look to him because he knows. He knows what to do. So he says in verse 5, Therefore, remember from what high state you've fallen and repent. Do the deeds you did at first. Go back to the way it used to be when you first fell in love with me because your love for me has grown cold. Your worship, you've lost that energetic, enthusiastic, devoted worship of me. I, I no longer, you know, make you tingle. I, I no longer move you. You're just sort of going through the motions as a church there at Ephesus. Again, you got all the doctrine right, and if, and if you were to take a Bible quiz, you'd probably score 100% on it, but that doesn't make up for your heart not being with me. Repent. Time to change. Then in every instance, notice he says this to every church. Look at verse 9. To the church at Smyrna, he says, I know the distress you're in, and by the way, this church he really gives no correction to. And it's very interesting. The two churches that have the least or no correction in Jesus are the ones that are going through the suffering the most. Something about purifying God's people whenever we suffer. And so you think about the church throughout the ages. You think about even the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in other countries where they truly have to pay a price and it costs them something to come to church or to gather with other believers and all that. There's a strength there. So notice, this is very interesting. Jesus says, look, I'm not unaware of the distress you're going through there in Smyrna. I know you're suffering. Sometimes we think God doesn't see me suffering. Yeah, he does. He's in our midst. Notice he also says, I see your poverty. Now, he, again, he's talking about the way, again, many times we as churches judge ourselves, our offerings, our bank accounts, all that. But notice what Jesus says. You may not have a lot of material goods as a church, but notice what he says. You're rich because you got me, the Lord of glory, and that's all you need. And then he says, look, I know you're being slandered by those who call themselves Jews, but they're really not. They're really instruments of Satan, part of his synagogue, not my church. So here's his answer to them. Don't be afraid. You're going to suffer. Oh, boy. That's a message we need to hear. Sometimes God says, it is part of my plan that my people go through suffering. He says, the devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison so that you may be tested. Who controls the devil? God. So who's allowing the suffering? God is. God's saying, I'm giving the devil the allowance to do this to my people because you need tested. You need put into the fire. But just like 
Daniel's friends. When you and I are right with God, we can be thrown into the fire and we're going to come out even stronger in the other end. He said, some of you are going to experience suffering for 10 days. It's going to be a limited time. But then he says, remain faithful even to the point of death and I'll give you the crown of life itself. See, faithfulness is the key to true perseverance. It means to put one's whole trust in the sovereign God and to follow him to the end, even if it means death. He will vindicate people in their suffering. And we might be hurt by the first death, but you and I as God's people can never be hurt by the second death. We cannot be destroyed by it. Our destiny is life for all of eternity. So Jesus says, so they kill your body. They can't kill you. You're mine. Just be faithful. Be faithful. That's a solution for the church at Smyrna. For the church at Pergamon, here's his solution. They're not good on the word. <laughs> They're allowing things to happen. They, he says in verse 13, I, I know where you live, by the way, where Satan's throne is. Whoa, what's that mean? It means that there are certain geographical places where darkness is greater. And this church was planted smack dab right next to, in the middle of Satan's throne, if you will, Satan's headquarters. He says, yet you continue to cling to my name and you've not denied your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed, he was martyred in your city. And notice he says, that's where Satan lives. It is at the heart of anti-Christian pressure is where this church was planted. But he says, in spite of your faithfulness to me in that way, he says, I have a few things against you, verse 14. You have people there who are following false teaching, putting a stumbling block before my people, and you're not doing anything about it. You even have people, verse 15, who are, who are promoting this other false teaching called the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and you're not doing anything about it. Therefore, repent. That's my solution. See, while the church at Ephesus had forgotten how to love, the church at Pergamum had neglected to speak the truth and stand up for the truth of God. They failed to take a strong stance against false teaching, and that was going to invite divine judgment, because notice what Jesus says. If you don't repent, I'm going to come against you quickly and make war against those people with the sword of my mouth. Jesus doesn't take too kindly to false doctrine in his church. He says, get your act together. Strong in worship, but you've got to be strong in the word too. That's what Jesus is looking for in his church. Then verse 19, the church at the Tyra. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, steadfast endurance. In fact, your more recent deeds are greater than your earlier ones, so I've seen growth in certain areas. But I have this against you. You're tolerating this woman who I'm calling Jezebel, a false prophetess, who's going around teaching things that's causing my people to fall into great sin. He says, I've given her time to repent. She's not willing to repent. So I'm about to throw her onto a bed of affliction. Furthermore, verse 23, I will strike the followers with a deadly disease and then all the churches will know I'm the one who searches minds and hearts. I repay each one what their deeds deserve. 
So he says, to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, to you, here's my, in a sense, solution or answer. I'm not going to put any additional burden on you. You got enough to deal with. Just get rid of this lady and get that false teaching out of your church. It is damaging and ruining the lives of my people. Strong in the word, strong in worship. That's what Jesus is looking for. Heads that are with him, hearts that are with him. This is his message. But Jesus doesn't close the messages to these churches this way. He closes on an encouraging note. After correcting them, in each and every case, here's the rhythm that we go back to. Notice back in chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will permit him to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. In every case, he says, look, not everyone will conquer, but everyone could conquer. To the one who's willing to overcome, to the one who's willing to conquer, to the one who's willing to live in spiritual victory, I'll reward you for all of eternity. And we've talked about this. Not every Christian will be rewarded equally throughout eternity. Not every Christian will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not every Christian will be given equal roles and responsibilities in eternity to rule and reign with Christ. Only those who have proven themselves faithful, the overcomers. Now, any one of us can be that. Any church can be that. And notice, every church had its challenges, where they were planted physically, what they were dealing with culturally, and all of this. Every church is different in that it all has different challenges. And based upon the makeup of the church, it all has different things that could creep in and either affect negatively the worship of the church or the word of the church to where the people of God then in that church are not living and experiencing life as the community of believers at the highest level that God intended and created the church to be. And it just... Sidelight, okay? Pause. (laughs) It amazes me today how many Christians are satisfied to stay in churches where they're not growing and where they know things aren't right, but they're too spiritually weak to change it. Jesus says, no, I'm I'm giving you my message so you got time to change and get your house in order. And I want you to be an overcomer so that you can experience not only life here on earth in the church at its highest level, but so then you will be rewarded for all of eternity to the one who conquers. And guess what? You and I can conquer through Jesus Christ because he's already conquered. The final victory was won on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, his victory over sin and hell and death and all the powers of darkness, it was all done at that point. It's just a matter of us partnering with him and living in his strength and in his victory. And when you and I do that, like Paul said, then I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I can be victorious and I can be an overcomer and I can live in victory. 
Jesus wouldn't tell his people to the one who overcomes if it wasn't possible. So notice in each and every case, look at verse 11. To the one who conquers, you will in no way be harmed by the second death. Look at verse 17, the church at Pergamum. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone will be written a new name that no one can understand except the one who receives it. Isn't that cool? God's going to give us a new name for those who conquer. And by the way, what he's describing there in verse 17 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, not every Christian is going to be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Only those who overcome. Look at verse 26. And to the one who conquers and who continues in my deeds until the end, I will give him authority over the nations. He will rule them in a, with an iron rod, and like clay jars, he will break them to pieces. See, Jesus saying, you and I can be part of him ruling and reigning on earth and then throughout eternity to the one who overcomes. By the way, remember what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? The meek will inherit the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. And then he has another promise. Just verse 28, as I receive the right to rule from my father, I will give him the morning star. The morning star signals the dispelling of darkness and victory over the night. It is symbolic of complete triumph over all enemies. Jesus is the bright and morning star, Revelation 22 Verse 15, the morning star. Whew. Here we have part one of Christ's message to his church. And as much as we could read this and study this tonight and say it reveals a lot about his people, the church, it reveals even more about him. We see in this a Savior who loves his people, who built the church for our own good so that we could experience life on this earth until he comes or until we're taken to be with him at the highest level. That's why he calls pastors and worship leaders and, and elders and, and people to step up and, and to serve in all these different capacities so that he can use us to, to try to bless and encourage others and, and all of this. And so the church is very vital and important to Jesus. It's what he says he's building now. Are we truly a part of it? Is it a priority? See, I'll just say it as plainly as I can. And I know some people are going to get maybe upset and their feathers ruffled by this, but I'm not going to be afraid to speak what I think is the truth. I don't think any Christian can experience God's best life outside of church. I don't think it's possible. And yet you have many, many Christians today who say, I don't need church. Church attendance continues to fall over, down, down, down. Church engagement, church service, it, 
It all is a picture to me of the last days. And even those that go to church, just like they did back here, there's issues, there's problems, there's things that need to be corrected. Are we as God's people listening to what he is saying to us through his spirit? He says, listen to me. If I'm telling you something, I'm only telling you because I love you and because I want what's best for you. Stay strong in your worship of me. Never fall from that highest place where you have me as your first love. Come as my people, appreciating me, admiring me, esteeming me, and adoring me, and pouring out your praise. Don't ever let it grow cold, your heart, for me. But at the same time, as a church, stay strong on my word. Don't compromise my word. Don't allow false teaching to come into that church. Stay true to my word. Don't ever be afraid to speak the truth, but do it in love. Because what I'm looking for in my church, what's Christ's standard of his church, it isn't nickels and noses. It isn't how big or small the church is. It isn't how big their bank account or small their bank account is. What Jesus is looking for are churches that are filled with devoted, enthusiastic worshipers who love him and who love his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight that you are further revealing yourself to us, your people. We are reminded who you are. We are reminded, God, that as your church and as your people, because you are the head of us, that we're accountable to you. When we put the name of Christ on us, when we call ourselves or others call ourselves a Christian, we are carrying the name of Jesus Christ to everyone and everywhere we go. Your reputation, Jesus, is connected to us. So we need to do it well, God. Not just for our sakes, God, but for your sake. We need to let others know as your light, as your lampstand, as your lighthouse, who you are. And God, the great thing is that the more we go after you in worship and the word, the brighter our light will become. You will light us up like nothing else or no one else can because our light comes from you, God. And you even put in this passage, God, that if that church at Ephesus didn't get their act together, you were going to come and remove their lampstand from their place. That doesn't mean that that church physically wasn't going to exist anymore. Oh, the brick and mortar was still going to be there for many, many years, but the light of Christ wasn't going to shine from that church anymore. How tragic. How many churches down through history have went that direction? Maybe they started out strong 
in worship in the word. At one time, they were a strong light for Jesus Christ, but somewhere along the line, they got off track and they never took your advice and got back on track again. Oh God, may that never happen to us here. God, if you're speaking to us, may we listen. May we follow you. May we be like that church at Smyrna that holds on until the end and remains faithful up until the end of days. No matter what happens on earth, God, we've got you, and that's all we need. And so, God, I pray tonight that your people would hear you, that we would listen, and that we would always realize, God, you love us more than we could ever imagine, and everything that you tell us as your people, you do so because it's, your love that's speaking. It's your heartbeat for us. And you only have our best interests at heart. God, I just pray tonight that we at the Oasis would just continue to listen to you and that we would continue to just strive to make our worship of you and our teaching of the word strong like you want it to be, God. Take us all home safely and Lord, build an anticipation and expectation for us to come back on Sunday once again to worship you as you deserve. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.